Hi, and welcome to Jackie Winder Gives You the Business. I'm Jeremy Wartzman, and I'm here with my co-host, Laura Chan-Baker. G'day. G'day. <laughs> Here at Jackie Winter, our roles put us right in the center of the action, in between client and creative, so we get to see all sides of the process. Every week, we come together in the decorative gourd cornucopia that is a recording studio and dissect three different links we've come across during our recent internet travels. We use these as a jumping off point to look at what's shaping issues, processes, happenings, and ideas across the creative industries today. This week, we're going through our open tabs and we'll be discussing podcasting apps, inspiration overload, and personal brands. Helping us bring some outside perspective today is our special guest and my personal internet hero, Elliot Burford. Originally from South Australia, Elliot is now a creative lead at the Google Creative Lab in New York. Previously at RGA New York, he designed key experiences for global brands, including Audible, Nike, Samsung, Tiffany & Co., and YouTube. Prior to moving stateside, Elliot spent two years in Italy in Fabrica, producing illustration, objects, and film for commercial ventures, nonprofit organizations, and exhibitions. Elliot, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me, guys. Oh, we are so excited. Although I have to ask, before we dig into things, Jeremy, what's a decorative gourd cornucopia? It's decorative gourd season, motherfucker. What the fuck's a gourd? What is a gourd? A gourd, okay. Well, it's like a pumpkin. It's like a pumpkin. And so, yeah, there's a McSweeney's piece that was written like around, I don't know, 10 years ago. It's all about being decorative gourd season, motherfucker. That was the title of the piece. And it's <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, that's, you know, that September 21st YouTube thing that you have to play? Oh, yeah. yeah, so. My it, favorite thing. Well, now that it, I mean, it's almost decorative gourd season. I mean, it's a bit early, but I thought I would just kind of come that's up. That's all right. This will come out in a week and then, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we will truly be there. Elliot, how are you going? What's going on in your life? Oh, well, you know, Monday evening. Evening, first day back at work for the week, charged up, ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> so and, are we. It's uh, 9 a.m. on a Tuesday and we're getting into it. And I did mention this kind of earlier, but yes, Elliot, you are one of my internet heroes. Um, your original kind of reinterpretations of spam emails are one of my favorite things on the internet. I'm so glad it's still up on your personal site. We'll kind of link to this. It also makes me realize how much and how little time has passed like this was a series you did in 2009 and one of the drawings um the one that says win your victory in bed is of a psp and i was like whoa that just that just took me back wow. even though like i'm everyone's kind of playing switches now yeah it's it's amazing how sometimes those images can can really anchor something in a place and time but um no amazing work there thank you thank you so much oh wow well you're, you're too generous um, i'm glad you like that one it's uh something i've I've kept in there. It's, I think it's still still has a is a great idea. And uh, I don't, I'm rambling here. I'm sorry. You can you can no, edit. No. this is you can edit me out this bit. I don't know how to take compliments. I'm just going to say thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, look, it does feed into one of our first links of the week, which um, we'll get right into now that Laura brings to us, which is all about fixing things that bugged you and a kind of a bit of an unsolicited redesign of the Apple Podcast app. Laura, where did you find this link? Why did you pick it? Tell us all about it. Yeah, so I found this piece through UX Collective, which is a medium blog that I subscribe to in my RSS feed. And it's basically just a curated collection of articles from a wide range of people all about uh, user experience, usability, product design, various other things in that field. And so this piece in particular, it's written by a UX designer named Henry Cheng. And it's about Henry's first time using the Apple podcast app and how he found it so frustrating to use that he decided as a, as a personal project to put his skills in usability and, and product design to work and, and redesign elements of the app. And I think I liked this piece for multiple reasons. I think firstly, the Apple podcast app sucks. Uh, I actually can't believe that they haven't redesigned it. It's such a terrible, terrible, terrible app. And What's second, your app of choice again? 
I use Pocket Casts. And Elliot, what about you? Are you are you a regular podcast listener? What do you use? I am, but I think because I've never really tried to find another sort of podcasting app, because it's the default, you just kind of start using Apple Podcasts. You and have a whole world podcast. ahead of you, Elliot. <laughs> really, like I, I promise you, it's a brand new day after this podcast. I, like. <laughs> Oh, it's the worst app. But yeah, also, I think I just find it really interesting when someone actually thinks sort of beyond their complaints and and investigates alternative ways of doing things. Jeremy, I know that you're like this as a person. So I thought that this sentiment might appeal to you you as well. Whereas I tend to just sort of complain and enjoy the complaining. (laughs) Um, And then also lastly, you know, UX design, I think is a really interesting discipline. I think everyone knows when something doesn't work. They can feel the frustration of bad design interrupting or halting the flow of some process. But it is a real skill to actually be able to understand why something isn't working and then how to how to address that. And this is just a small personal experiment in this piece. So I really can't attest to Henry's skills, but it's just a topic in general that I find interesting. And it was also interesting for me to see the design process laid out like this because I didn't design, I, I didn't study design or anything. So I wasn't taught about the sort of step-by-step process of design in, in the way that Henry clearly was. So I think to many designers, I imagine this stuff isn't the interesting part of the piece. But for me, I enjoyed seeing the approach that he took sort of start with comparative and, and compar- sorry, starting with comparative and, and competitive analysis, then interviewing consumers and doing all sorts of online research, uh, sketching out ideas based on his research, designing various mock-ups, getting people to do usability tests on those prototypes, and then sort of finally reflecting on that process and, and making iterations. And I imagine this is a pretty standard formula for this kind of process, but I do always find it really sort of intriguing the idea of approaching creative projects with a set of sort of predetermined steps in this way. And it kind of reminded me, like I had the same feeling recently because Jeremy, as you know, we're doing some work on updating certain parts of our business. And it's been really fascinating for me to see how they approach such an open-ended mammoth of a task with these sort of clearly defined steps of things like market research, researching and analyzing the competition, workshops to develop brand positioning and, and, and so on. And again, I've never been taught how to approach these sorts of things with structure. So um, as much as it seems like common sense, I do also find it, it like a, quite an impressive thing to witness. And then this also got me thinking about what we were discussing in an uh, earlier episode, one or two episodes ago about job applications. And we talk all the time here about the importance of self-initiated work, both, you know, for allowing yourself to to learn and explore as well as to build a folio of projects that you can point to as things that you've proactively undertaken. And this to me stands out as the kind of thing that would be brilliant to include in a resume or folio or, or mention in an interview as a way to really clearly show a, a potential employer how you're able to sort of physically apply these skills. And then ideally by putting things like this out in the public sphere, people actually interact with it and you build a bit of a following and that can also be used to your benefit to show off your expertise to employers or at least that you're in touch with your professional community. So, I mean, admittedly, what I got from this piece was less about his actual final design and more a sense of appreciation for what Henry had had voluntarily undertaken, which is kind of my point, I guess, that the fact that he took a month of his time to research and develop and test an idea just because he wanted to see if he could improve upon the existing application was was impressive to me. And I think recently we had someone include in a job application examples of how they would tackle a particular task and you know, tasks that we had mentioned would be part of the role. And of course, you know, the fact that what they did was actually well done and appropriate was a huge factor. But also before I'd even read the examples properly, I was impressed that they'd gone to the effort and had the forethought to include it. But all that aside, back to the experiment itself. I want to know, Elliot, you mentioned you use the Apple Podcast app. Mm-hmm. Do you have frustrations with it? Has it like occurred to you that it's bad? Oh, oh completely. I just feel like I've been uh, held captive by Apple in that sense. <laughs> and I think, I think a lot of the world feel held captive by Apple. Yeah. And I have an on and off maybe relationship with podcasts that I 
will listen intensely for a period of time and then I'll jump out. And then sometimes I listen through iTunes on the, is it even called mm. iTunes anymore? What is it called? Yeah, it is iTunes. <laughs> I've got, I've got uh, no idea. Any, on desktop. So I never have had it organized. I've never had my podcast organized. Because so. I think for me, that's a huge part of enjoying podcasts is being able to listen to it in a way that is organized. Like if I hadn't have gone past the Apple podcast app, I probably wouldn't be such an avid listener. So it's interesting to hear that that maybe has stopped you as well. Jeremy, what do you want? You on Overcast? I'm on Overcast. And yeah, you know, like I actually have been listening to an audiobook, this, the, the new kind of JK Rowling one. Oh, yeah. And um, I had, it's like, it's 24 hours long. I had to go from 2X. I'm at 3X now. Three X. Yeah. How are you even taking in any of the story, Jeremy? It's so good. It's so it's so much better. Three X because my podcasts are not banking up. It's like you know, like I, I don't have time. I can't, I can't do but both. No, that's fine. No one cares if you don't make it through all of them. Enjoy the content, Jeremy. They, they we can't have to, this argument every week, Jeremy. Hey, look. I mean, look. This is an interesting article, and I don't know. Like, I actually kind of. I don't know. I think I'm a bit more kind of cynical on the exercise, though, in terms of. I guess, especially taking such a big product like this, like to me, it really reads as an unsolicited job ad. It's like, I and I see a lot of people kind of doing this because they want that job at Apple or Facebook or Google. And they kind of, you, you know, they do these exercises hoping that it's going to get this kind of internet momentum and get a job that way. So I don't know. I was looking at it through a cynical eye and it was interesting as well because on one of the slacks that I'm in, Someone actually did this um, for a much smaller company, and it actually caused my contact to get a lot of grief from his bosses because it's like it raised all these questions about like, hey, why aren't you kind of doing those things? So someone else kind of answered that. So I actually kind of am approaching this with a bit more caution. I think it's good for these kind of questions to be asked, but I think for for an app such as the podcast app, which has so many kind of users, I kind of thought it was a bit comical. He's like, I asked six people what they thought, oh, yeah. and my own, that was you know, hilarious. it's like, well, you know, you're talking about an app that like literally hundreds of thousand people are using, and like so many more kind of considerations go into that. So, Elliot, yeah, I, I want to actually, if they were, <laughs> you wouldn't actually do a redesign like this, but no, I just no. think as an exercise to try and flex your skills, flex your muscles a bit, I think it's a. Yeah. It's a good practical task. Well, I mean, Ellie, I was kind of curious. Like, in, I mean, a lot of the points that Laura raised about, yeah, this kind of being like of finding out, you know, how these big design problems are kind of tackled. You are somebody who does work in a large kind of in, within a very large kind of company that I'm sure kind of faces these challenges as well. Is this kind of process reflective of what it's actually like, or is it a bit different? Like, how do you how do these kind of big problems get tackled? You're totally right. A lot of this stuff does happen. I think it really depends on which team you're on. So if I was on the podcast team, I'd probably go for a very formal process and there would be the sort of steps that are laid out, maybe roughly sort of in line with what's in this article. Myself, the team that I'm on, we kind of try and jump to the end as soon as possible. And we will try and use a bit of a process, but a lot of it's by sort of by gut to begin with and just try and make stuff and then play with it. So you try and make things as fast and quickly as possible so you can test and learn from it yourself. And that's kind of what I missed a little bit about in this article is there was a lot of emphasis on process, but it was hard to see a visible before after because I, I kind of was looking at the the solutions and I'm kind of thinking, looks a lot like what we started with. <laughs> I'm not sure. Do you know what I mean? Like you guys have been using, well, know that uh, the podcast, Apple podcast app isn't great. So you're kind of looking for a drastic change. And when it's just like the addition of a couple of extra buttons, I'm like, I'm not sure if that's really solving the huge, the sort of larger problem. I also missed that he didn't really look at other sort of 
references that weren't other podcasting apps. Like, why wouldn't you look at any sort of media player like Audible or Spotify or even YouTube? Like, like you guys are, are invested in using platforms that have a visual component. So where is the sort of where is that allowed for in this system? Yeah, that's I mean, and that's really interesting. And and I think, you know, we talk a lot about podcasting being this kind of ancient medium. And I think, you know, it's the, in terms of redesigning what a podcast player can be, I think you can go a lot further than these kind of tiny annoyances and things like that. But look, yeah, I mean, I think it was great effort to do this kind of self-initiated work. And I wanted to tie that back into your own practice, Elliot, because so much of your original work is self-initiated. And one of that's my biggest kind of thing is like in in when you're in school or when you kind of recently graduate, you don't have briefs, you need to kind of make them up to kind of generate a folio. That's one of the, the hardest things to do. Do you think your own self-initiated work kind of played a big role in, you know, in defining your career and your practice? I, in many ways, I think I kind of have approached self-initiated projects traditionally as, oh, hey, I kind of suck at doing illustration. Why don't I make some sort of illustration collection? And because I'm a true sort of graphic designer who can't do anything without a brief, I would have to create that brief for myself. So in the case of the spam illustrations that you mentioned earlier, that was really just a tool for me to do more illustration and and see if I could improve that as a skill. So with this article, I'm sure this guy's like, well, I want to show that I can do product design. So, or I want to get better at it. So he just created his own brief of like, I'm going to redesign this thing and everyone will be able to see it. Do you see that a lot, like, you know, in terms of the work that you're doing now, like kind of at Google, like do people kind of send in unsolicited kind of redesigns or like, is that kind of, you know, part of the practice or culture at all? Or, you know, or this is something that you can do in, in your organization? Like if you find like, you know, that there is a problem with something, can you take the initiative to kind of fix it? Or is it different in a company of that scale? Oh, you, you almost described my job there in the creative lab. Our job is really to look at how to invent the future of Google so, and it's deliberately that sort of ambiguous and open because it gives us the ability to sort of look at anything and go, hey, how could that be better? Or how come this doesn't really make sense to me or to users in general? Like, how might I fix that? So, I kind of do work as a design entrepreneur in a way, which is very different from agency and studio experiences that I had previously. I really do have that ability to look at a problem and say, oh, I think I can help fix that and sort of jump in and and pitch for something. Laura, what would you fix? Um, app, software, appliances, if you, if you were running Laura's creative <laughs> lab. It's funny because I should have kept a list because I feel like I complain on this podcast so much about things that just don't work. But the only thing that, that really came to mind was like calling like government services or banks or anything where you have to sit on hold for forever. Like I know that sometimes every now and then you would get that thing that was like, we'll if you hang up now, we'll call you back when it's ready. I'm like, that's a great service. Why don't they all do that? Or like, why can't you just register for a call online or like through an app or something? And then they just call you when they're available. Like that to me is like the biggest waste of time in life. What would you fix? Well, it's so hard to kind of talk about without kind of giving away certain secret plans we may or may not be working on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just keep an eye on this space. Yeah, keep an eye on this space. Indeed. Elliot, is there anything you would love to fix? Kind of everything. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I think there's so many things. And when you just start looking around, you actually notice like, oh, what if that could be a little bit like this or that? Or why does this suck so bad? So well, I don't have a top that, list. Like, really caught my eye. I don't know if they do it in the States, but at least here, like 
I mean, I don't drive, but still a major one I always thought about was parking, which like finally seems to have been solved somewhat with the advent of the parking payment apps. Like, so you don't have to go and put coins in a meter. You can just update it in your phone. And like, that to me is just like, oh, why didn't that happen sooner? You know, and it's great that that finally is sort of a ubiquitous thing. I just think, yeah, fixing, you know, fixing these problems are big and they, they, the scale required to fix them is immense. Like I've been reading about why this, like what's happening with the New York City subway, Ellie, you'd probably be very up close and personal with this, but like the technology that's drive, like, have you seen that, like the tech that drives the subway, like some of it's like a hundred years old. It's kind of crazy. And to, and to make these changes like at scale is really challenging. So expensive. And expensive, yeah, because I mean, especially now you have these kind of apps and there's kind of, you know, just like, you know, any kind of public infrastructure project, there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people using them. So every change you make is kind of so important. I mean, and I can imagine that must be really frustrating and challenging to be at the end of that to try to get, you know, to try to be able to take those risks. But this is a great step in kind of going in that direction. So I think, um, yeah, we'll move on from there. Thanks, Lara. The second link of the week is coming from myself, from 99U, the blog that is part of Behance. And uh, Scott Belsky, the uh, founder of Behance, has been doing the rounds recently with his new book, The the Messy Middle, which has been really great. He was just on kind of Tim Ferriss's podcast. I really enjoyed it the other week. I just Have can't you, deal with Tim Ferriss. Yeah. You see, if you listen to your podcast at 3X, you would get less Tim Ferriss and more. I'm happy stuff. with zero Tim Ferriss. <laughs> Look, this was something that I've wanted to talk about for a while. And it's and I mean, I think the content of the actual piece isn't that interesting. But the headline is really kind of where it's all at, which is design debate. Is there such a thing as too much inspiration? Short answer, yes. Discussion <laughs> to follow. I think this is something we kind of really struggle with. A lot of our artists kind of struggle with as well. I kind of think when we're talking about inspiration, especially in the creative community, we're really just talking about Instagram. Is there anything else that we're talking about? Or is that, I mean, there's a bit of Pinterest in there as well, but yeah, I mean, it's predominantly Instagram, isn't it? But, you know, look, Einstein said genius is 99% perspiration, 1% inspiration. Is that kind of formula now kind of been inverted somehow? Laura, what do you think? Are you over-inspired or over-perspired? Oh, it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm always <laughs> aspiring. You know me, I it's, it's, I mean, it's funny because I agree that as a, as a visual artist looking too often at the artwork of others can have a, a definitely have a negative effect on, on your output and, and your ability to sort of use your own imagination and, and creativity. But I personally am not a visual artist. So, you know, and I find as, as someone who writes, I find it's actually quite the opposite. I find that reading a, a wide range of texts and reading, reading well-written texts helps me in all the areas needed to actually improve my own writing, such as, I don't know, whether that be broadening my perspectives and sort of growing my familiarity with the viewpoints of others or expanding my vocabulary or getting data or research or being playful with language and or whatever else it could be. And I fa- in fact, I think that for anyone who wants to learn to write, the main remedy is to read, you know, but I don't think the same stands for visual art. And yes, absolutely, there can be a problem with oversaturation. But again, that said, it probably depends on the purpose of your work. You know, are you a fine artist or are you purely commercial? Because I think those things are quite different and probably require different strategies. Yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting because one of the, I mean, this this article really is a collection of kind of interviews with kind of different people. And one thing people, one thing one person is saying is that they've moved away from brow- browsing on Tumblr blogs and Pinterest because what inspires them is hearing about how a problem was solved. And I think that that kind of ties into the previous link a bit because, well, it's these longer form, it's these longer form pieces kind of talking more about ideas and how they're kind of watching videos and kind of looking at these kind of things where all this kind of time goes into it and then kind of putting it up there rather than just kind of a, this kind of endless kind of feed of images that you have to kind of completely feed. Laura, even though you're not an artist yourself, Mm. like we rely so much, I guess, trying to 
know kind of what's on trend mm. and being inspired, especially when we're trying to give our artists kind of feedback mm -hmm. or whether we're kind of looking for new artists or kind of things like that. I mean, is that kind of is that something that kind of factors into your Absolutely. In, into I your think life? I, I mean, I think you could very much say that it's part of my job to know what's happening in the in the illustration industry and in to some extent the sort of art world as a sort of as not as a whole but you know branching out from illustration as well and I think it's incredibly important for us as agents as producers working in the space that we do to have a handle on you know what our own artists are producing of course as well as their sort of peers people that we don't represent are people in the same market people in other markets and also what clients are using you know so looking at the kind of work that clients are putting out and trying to sort of anticipate what might come next you know and that's a it's a tricky thing to do and in order to do that you have to be on the pulse of of all those things but again that's different i'm not the one creating work i'm trying to create a market for work you know so that's it's a bit of a different space to be in i did like um at one point nadine kolodzi i I don't know if I'm murdering her name there, but um, she was an illustrator interviewed for the piece. She says that instead of following other illustrators on Instagram, she follows people who post sort of generally aesthetically pleasing content that isn't illustration. So, for example, people who collect unusual stones or take photographs of um, beautifully arranged Japanese food. And she says that these accounts help to sort of spark new concepts and directions in her mind. And I had a, I had a sudden flashback to episode six of this podcast, which is about a million trillion years ago now, where we were talking about who owns a creative concept with our brilliant lawyer and friend Yasmin Nagavi. And as a part of that conversation, Jeremy, you asked me about reference imagery within a brief and how clients can use reference imagery to guide an, il an illustration project in the right way. And it was there that we talked about a kind of a similar thing, but from the side of the client, like we talked about the idea of using references, not to emulate work, but to dig a bit deeper and figure out what specifically it is you like about a piece. Um, you know, perhaps it's a particular feeling that it inspires or a color palette and then applying those in a new way and, and sort of drawing inspiration from unexpected and unrelated sources like the curvature of a car or a piece of music, you know. And then I found interesting that the next person interviewed, Thomas uh, Kronbichler, <laughs> nailed it, <laughs> from Studio Mutt, Mutt <laughs> was overall, um, he was much more in favour of the endless sort of streams of in imagery than Nadine. But then they also stated the following. So he said, this is what you were referring to before, um, the story behind a design and how a problem is solved is so crucial to one's understanding of it. I find that I'm not inspired by images of a particular design, but instead I'm inspired when I hear about a design process. Learning about a designer's particular philosophy is far more likely to inform my own. I also enjoy hearing about how a designer approaches client relationships. This, of course, cannot be summed up by a single image. And I think this harks back to what I was saying at the beginning about writing, that what's useful in seeing other people's work is not so much the finished product, but the process and the building blocks. And you kind of get that inherently with written works, but with visuals, it's so much more useful. There's added context and you can then take the learnings from their process and apply it to something new again, sort of digging deeper to understand the reasons why a piece is effective rather than just copying that piece. Mm. Ooh, a lot to pick apart there. Elliot, I'm curious to get your interpretation or feedback here because you're kind of on both sides. I mean, you're someone who is a practitioner and a designer and, you know, you have your own work, you have kind of client work as well. How does kind of inspiration fit into your life? Is it something that you actively kind of think about? Where do you kind of get it? And also kind of when you're working and when you're working kind of with clients as well or kind of in, you know, in the agency, you know, how do you kind of bring inspiration in and reference in and kind of use as part of your practice right <clears throat> well sorry about that <clears throat> you asked me 12 you asked me 1200 questions just now <laughs> it's a classic jeremy move yeah it's good i was like i was i was holding on to the first question and then you added two more and i was like okay i lost it i lost it all <laughs> let's go go back to the first one what was the first one? <laughs> 
was about where like, do, I, what do I get inspiration? Where, well, yeah, where do you get inspiration? And how do you I kind get? of feel and how do you get, get it without being overwhelmed? Or do you feel an overwhelmed? Because I mean, you're you're in New York and you're at Google. I mean, you're kind of at the apex of kind of creative life at the moment. So yeah, how do you kind of how do you keep it all contained? So yeah, I, I think I found inspiration really useful definitely earlier in my career when I was trying to figure out what was out there, what was like what could be done in a visual space or a design space or problem solving. And then as I've gotten old and gray, I <laughs> tended to sort of move away from that a little bit. And I, I do agree with this idea of understanding why the work was done and being able to learn from it at a deeper level. So the Instagram format doesn't really click with me because it just becomes aesthetic. And uh, as a result, I actually kind of don't use social media that much. Like I, I, I'm still on Instagram, but I kind of officially just said, hey, uh, I'm not going to use it anymore because it's too, it's overwhelming. There's too much stuff going on. So the inspiration that I get now is a little bit more from the people around me, actually, the designers I work with and sort of talking with them about what's inspiring their projects or their ideas, what they've been doing recently. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I think, and I think that is a natural progression as, as people go through their careers, probably step a little further or they feel a bit more confident in their own abilities and feel less like they need to look at what other people are doing before they embark upon their own sort of creative exploits. I think, you know, the final person they interviewed, Paulina Joff, who's an art director and graphic designer, she was very much in favor of, of keeping tabs on the creative work being produced by those around you. And, and I was struck by this line. She said, um, if you know what others are doing, you can choose to engage with it or you can choose to reject it. And I, I think that's all well and good, but I just don't know how possible that actually is because I think the problem that we're really getting at here is not people who are intentionally copying work because we all know that's bad, but you know, it's, you know, something that most people, at least in their sort of outward values try not to do, but rather the, the issue is that if you're constantly looking at other people's visual work, you will unintentionally guide your own work towards the same sort oh, of look. And we've talked about that in the we've podcast and lot. we've seen it happen with other artists Completely. Well. And you see it with um, different sort of regions, like similar work coming out of parts of Europe, similar work coming out of Australia, similar, you know, you, you are inherently influenced by what's around you. And I think, you know, that's because we as humans tend to regurgitate our experiences. And if our experiences are a certain type of work, then that's probably going to contribute heavily towards what we ourselves create, whether we're conscious of it or not. And I think, you know, Polina comments that whilst we sort of often talk about creating Activity coming from within, she doesn't really agree and she believes that every idea comes from somewhere else. And, and I definitely agree with her. And that's exactly why I like to suggest the idea of taking inspiration from things that are not necessarily from the same realm as the thing that you're looking to create, specifically because we innately produce ideas uh, because of the things that we see and experience. To me, that is an argument not to look constantly at other illustrators, if you're an illustrator, but perhaps to, I don't know, look at painters and photographers and architects and so on. Well, this seems like something that, that this is kind of why the algorithm or what we call the algorithm is so problematic, because at the moment, when you look for something, it gives you more of that, or it gives you a bigger or better version of what that is as well. And I think that's kind of hard because it puts you in this kind of loop there where the algorithm could effectively kind of open you up to kind of complete opposite things and kind of open you up kind of that way, which I think there is some kind of responsibility on some on some bigger companies and organizations to try to kind of make that experience. It takes a lot of self-discipline to to not be pulled into those. Well, that, but that's the thing. It's like, you know, do you think it's part of our culture where the things that we see or and putting 
not putting kind of limits on it, but kind of like understanding that the things that we put in our senses into our eyes and our ears are just as important as what kind of we put in our mouths and like, you know, how we kind of nourish our body, how we nourish our brain and creativity. You know, what we look at is kind of important. And I, th- I think we're starting to kind of, because articles like this are being written, it is kind of start to be realized. But I think it is a fine line because I think as a designer, I've always kind of thought designers are like kind of music producers in that way where kind of you're always, you're always working with somebody else's creative tools. You're working with fonts, you're working with photos and illustrations, and you're kind of then assembling it all together. So you need to know what people are doing so you can figure out the best. Yeah. And you also often give the advice to illustrators to be aware of, like commercial illustrators I'm talking about specifically, but to be aware of what else is being created in the market, because as a way, I guess, of figuring out where you sit within that. But I guess there's a line between figuring out where you sit and carving out your own spot and just falling in line with everything else that you see. Mm. Elliot, do you do any kind of commissioning at all? Or are you kind of, do you, do you ever have to hire other kind of creative people? Or are you kind of mostly just doing your own creative work? We often will hire animators, sometimes illustrators slash animators, uh, depending on the project that we're working on. And then otherwise, it's just your stock and trade designers and, and writers and so forth. I don't, I don't think we've, we've had to really think about hiring people that are, are specific from a certain style. A lot of the time, we look for people who have flexibility, who can do a few different things, because all of the projects that we're working on are kind of amorphous. So we're not really sure what we're looking for to begin with. Well, sounds like a really great position to be in. I mean, and I think that's kind of, that, that's the one thing that I'm kind of mostly concerned about is like things potentially kind of getting stale because of everyone's kind of looking at the same thing or just looking at too much. It's literally kind of burning you out. Like I know I was having this conversation with Bianca the other day. It's like, oh, it's like, I don't like there are, I feel like sometimes there's artists that are coming to us or we're looking at who are generally really good, but maybe we're not seeing it because we look at kind of so many things. But then I look at a photograph or something of like, you know, a piece of architecture and it feels like a breath of fresh air because it's mm. something so different. I feel I can kind of pick it out there. So I, I think just... Well, it's it, also, I think this also reminds me of when we were talking to Jeff Hamada a few episodes ago and how he was saying with, uh, so Jeff runs Boom webs, art website and how he actually sort of consciously tries not to post, to make sure that the content isn't too similar doesn't just fall into one category it's precisely because of that problem because he's aware that people who are looking at the site are going to get a sort of tunnel vision of a certain type of look or a certain type of feel and how he doesn't want his personal aesthetic to, to necessarily dictate that too much but it's also it's really hard because you that's what people do it's those biases are within us and it's hard to to stop that yeah laura's anything inspiring you at the moment I think it's different for me, I guess, because again, I'm not in a creative role, so I don't have a need to find inspiration for my work. You know, like I'm not looking at like budgets or timelines from other projects um, and it's not going to affect the originality of my quotes and my schedules. So I'm in a more luxurious position, I guess, where I can sort of take the liberty of looking at however much artwork I like and enjoying it at, at face value. I definitely, just what you said really hit a note for me there that I am looking at the moment at less illustration just because it is what I'm surrounded by day in, day out. And it's not that I don't have a huge appreciation for, of course I do, I wouldn't do what I do if I didn't. But yes, now in order for me to really enjoy it as something that isn't work, the stuff that I look at is um, I'm looking at a lot of painting at the moment and photography. Yeah. Excellent. Well, that has inspired me to move to our next segment. So thank Ooh, you another brilliant for segue. your feedback there. We'll, we'll go on from there. As is our want for every episode, our guest brings us the final link. Elliot, you have something for us. But before we get into it, and speaking of inspiration, I'm kind of curious, this is something I like to ask everybody, where do you like our where do you find 
your links? Where did you find this link? Where do you kind of go to for general inspiration right now, apart from the people that you work with? Ooh, good question. I actually subscribe, I think, to two email newsletters. One from It's Nice That, which I'm, I'm sure you guys are familiar with. One, oh, Under Consideration is another one, which is a branding-focused one. And then there's a few more sort of news and tech world-based ones. One from a guy called Benedict Evans, another one called The Exponential View, Product Hunt, and The New York Times. So I kind of have the, the design side, and then I also have this, like, what's going on in the world and technology and what a It's important to doing. poke your head out from the hole every now and then and, and look around. I'm finding, though, that most people are saying that they're getting their content from newsletters now, though. Yeah. 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 Because you want it to be curated. That's this whole thing that comes back to the oversaturation of content is that you want someone who you trust, who you agree with their interests to pull together like seven links for you, you know, <laughs> like this it is limits, what you should read. It like limits the amount that I can consume. I'm like, all right, I've gone through the 10. It's nice that things for the week. That's it. Yeah. The problem is there's so many good newsletters. Like I've got like probably maybe like eight or nine different newsletters. And if each one is sending me 10 links a day, that's a, that's a lot of content. And I read it all. Not not during work hours, Jeremy. Never. Naturally. Never. So wait, are newsletters now the new lower back tattoos and not podcast? Oh, you have to explain what you're talking about here, Jeremy. <laughs> well, I think it, I think it already explains itself. I think there was a Bianca tagged us in a meme. In a meme that said, "Yeah, what was it?" So yes, Bianca tagged us in a meme from Overheard New York that says, "Having a podcast is this generation's lower back tattoo," which is like, ouch. But uh, someone commented on it. It says, "Off base comparisons like this are this generation's lower back tattoo." <laughs> Zing. <laughs> oh God. Well, Elliot- oh wow, people are sad, mad about this. The Champagne Diet has commented. It's actually a brilliant business move that, if done well, adds massive value to your community. Oh, snap. <laughs> Kudos to adding, you. Adding value is the new lower back tattoo. Anyway, moving on, Elliot, this link, um, it's a bit older. It's from earlier in the year in um, May. Um, why did you choose it? And tell us a bit more about it. So I'm a sucker for this app called Pocket. I don't know if you guys have used that. Yeah, it's you my favorite it? newsletter. It's your Pocket. favorite oh. newsletter? It's, it's yeah, the way- Pocket newsletter is the best. It's a way to, and it's also a plugin for Chrome. Yes. So it's a way to like save links when you see them and you're like, oh, I should read that later. And then you go to your phone and it's already downloaded for offline reading, which is great if you catch a train or anywhere else that's underground. Elliot, with no reception. are you like me? When you save something to pocket and close the tab, is that just like an admission that you're never going to read it? Because that's how it works for me. No, no, I'm the opposite. Oh, I'm like, I will good. read nothing and then I'll open up the pocket thing and then I'll be like, these are the things that I should read. <laughs> oh, you're good. You're good. So that's how I sort of probably stumbled across this article at some point and I saved it to pocket. And then when you guys were talking about links, I was like, hmm, what have I sort of read recently that I found interesting? And I came across this one, like what happens when people and companies are both just brands. So I've been kind of obsessed for a good 12 years, probably with this whole idea of how we represent ourselves. And this was pre pre smartphone. And I read this book called The Art of Self-Invention by Joanne Finkelstein, Stein, something, something along those lines. <laughs> and I just got, I was just absolutely fascinated about this idea of how you present yourself and how you can manipulate what other people think in the way that you talk or you dress. And then of course, now that we have social media, it's kind of poured gasoline on this so that anyone can be anything and everyone's trying to be everything to everyone. So to jump to the article, which is kind of rehashing just things that I'm interested in, I guess, and it asks a lot more questions than there are answers. But to briefly sort of summarize, 
It goes on about how everything has become about being a brand, whether that's companies or individuals, and even every single piece of content on the internet. So in some ways, it's like air, like we don't even realize it's there. So companies are talking like people and people are talking like companies. <laughs> we all have to be our own sort of brand managers. Goes on to talk about the origins of branding, which I'm sure you guys already sort of clued into. But uh, it's worth shouting out that this idea of companies moving towards branding sort of took the spotlight away from labor practices and more towards narrative and identity, which is kind of like an interesting thing when you think about how if I'm a company and I'm doing some things that people aren't quite so happy with, you know, I've got my sort of sweatshop in whatever country that might be, but then I'm like, hey, just do it. Do I forget about the other stuff that you're doing because I believe in the mission? Well, we work very hard to to get people to forget about our Jackie Winter sweatshop. Yeah, <laughs> it's tricky. Do wow. you, I mean, Elliot, do you think this is... Job. <laughs> Sorry, go on. You, I'm just curious. I mean, is this your reaction to this? Like, do you, do you feel this is a positive, negative, neutral kind of development? Like, you know, what are, what are your feelings? Well, I'm just, I think it's, it's a brave new world that we're all still trying to figure out because it's almost, and I, and I guess the questions I had about this were like, is it possible not to be perceived as a brand? Because everything we do online branded and there's almost this inherent sort of, we've inherited this idea that, oh, we've now got this sort of avenue through the internet to sort of promote ourselves. And that's great for, to differentiate yourselves for others to get like a promotion or that freelance gig. But sometimes the end goal of like just becoming more and more, getting more and more likes online and so on, I'm not always clear on what the end goal is because it's clear that it's not always financial success. So sometimes I'm, I'm just really curious about how people and, and the creatives even that you represent, like, is there an idea driving everything or are they a business or are they a, a person first and then a brand second? Or is there a difference? Like when they're, when they're on the Instagram, are they representing what they want their brand to say or do they tr just be their authentic selves? How, this is really interesting because I think it's, it's something that I think a lot of artists actually struggle with. I've had people, you know, artists bring it up with me as well of like how to manage that, you know, that, that Instagram becomes an extension of their, um, I guess, yeah, of their workplace. Like it's a, it's, it's a work tool more than it is like a fun social platform for, for many visual artists. I think just firstly, this piece was a great find. I, the writer, Amanda Hess, uh, writing for the New York Times here, I think she's done a great job of writing a, a, something pretty enjoyable. That second paragraph where she deliberately uses the word brand like 900 times <laughs> was such a hilariously <laughs> acute way of pointing out the sort of ubiquity of the brand as a concept. Anyway, well written, worth the read. I think. Yeah, you mentioned how you've been interested in this for a long time, pre sort of social media. And, and I agree that the notion of a personal brand, I mean, not necessarily as a recognized concept, but just as a, as a thing that exists, you know, it's been around for a long time, does just sort of an extension of personality. But the key difference that you've touched on here, you know, with this question is that with the advent of social media, everything that you say or do or experience or eat is now sort of recorded in the public ledger. And that has the effect of sort of building a, a cataloged history that allows people to to build a consistent perception of you and and it also builds an expectation of your future sort of content or behavior and it's almost uncanny now to think of a time when you could say or do things that wouldn't be recorded either by you or by someone else either deliberately or or just by chance you could actually project a different version of you onto each and every person that you interact with and that's just sort of not really possible now because there's this sort of collective consciousness of who companies are and who people are so yeah, I guess while I don't, I definitely don't think of myself as 
having or being a brand of any sort. I guess if we're talking about some kind of consistent persona that is accessible by others, then yeah, we all sort of fit somewhat within that. And I think uh, one thing to note is that this brand isn't just built by what you put out, but it's also built by what others put out about you. So it's not entirely controllable or avoidable. Yeah. And I, and I think those kind of perceptions are kind of things like, you know, elevating your own status or what your kind of status is or what your position is. I mean, that is, that has significant value, even if it's not financial. So, I mean, Elliot, you kind of do ask kind of what the end game is there. And I, and I think that those more intangibles still have a lot of value and still are something that are pursued in that way. You, you know, you brought up here kind of in our notes, kind of talking about this article about whether creatives can separate themselves from their brand or their kind of current job. And I kind of noted that as well. Like, you know, you kind of went to Fabrica out of uni. And I think there is kind of something that like, yeah, once you kind of, once you do something like that, you kind of have that brand of Fabrica kind of on you, you Mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. and that kind of gives you a certain kind of legitimacy and carries it through you, through your career. And even now kind of at Google, like as a Googler, even you being kind of in the creative lab, like that becomes kind of part of your identity. I'm wondering, like, yeah, is that something that you feel that, that you know, how, how do you feel about that? I'm so aware of it. And this is the thing is, is you don't have control over it. It's like, okay, by association, you're connected to a thing. So if Fabrica or Google or, or whatever company or or client that I had did something really bad, does that somehow bounce back onto me and, and vice versa? Uh, actually, oh, yeah. I, we, we can, I can kind of answer that now that I think about it. When you think about how <laughs> brands distance themselves from, you know, sports people that have done something sort of publicly shameful and they somehow sort of like cut them from the team very visually, it's because it's, it's, it is a brand reputation sort of thing. Absolutely. And conversely, sort of attaching themselves to people who have a sort of a certain image or whatever, like, for example, recently with, with the Copernic stuff, you know, like mm-hmm. it's, there's, it goes both you know, both ways very much. So I think something that puts me off this notion of sort of um, selling a sort of brand or ideas as a, as a person is that it makes it really hard to sort of change direction. Like I'm not, I'm not really sure how best to articulate this, but like, I mean, in order to sell an idea or a brand, there has to be consistency, which I think is all well and good for a company. But for a human, I think it's really limiting to have to be consistent and not just limiting in terms of like what you can enjoy, like types of music or clothing, but limiting in terms of sort of growing and changing your your views and values. I think it encourages people not to sway from the self-images that they portray and to sort of dig their heels further into their existing mindsets. And that that's a dangerous thing. You know, it makes people defensive rather than open to growth and learning to understand different perspectives for fear of sort of inconsistency with their with their personal brand and i think it's it's sort of it's almost peer pressure on an on an enormous scale and in on the one hand i think of course there are positives to being accountable for the history of your actions but also there are effects of that that are really prohibitive that's really interesting. And also, I, I don't know, it's, it, I, I kind of come up against that in some ways, because there's sometimes consistency I, is, sometimes, is, is a trait I really, really value. I think, you know, especially the older that I get. But I think also... But the, not when it limits growth. No, no. Yeah, of course. Of Improvement. Course. Yeah. But that's kind of also this whole idea of kind of this whole idea of eternal or you know, always growing or always kind of improving. And I think that's kind of part of our culture that's becoming more and more problematic the more you kind of look at it. And I kind of think this whole idea of personal branding as well kind of initially came from a designer named um, Nicholas Feltron. Are you guys familiar with him at all? Mm-hmm. He did the, the Feltron annual report, which is like he, he as an individual, he did individual 
annual reports, like where he kind of tracked huh. all of his data. And this was before you could actually track data. It's before Apple Watch oh, and God, all so that kind of manually. stuff. Yeah, he did it kind of manually. And it was really, and then he produced these beautiful kind of annual reports. And I think, and he was actually one of the designers who um, was the lead designer for Facebook's timeline, <laughs> interestingly enough. And yeah, like now that we have all this kind of data, we can kind of get all this kind of quantifiable information about us. And I think it is kind of, it, it, it's stressful to always kind of want to improve yourself, especially when you take the previous link about the whole kind of inspiration kind of overload where we're seeing all these kind of things about other people as well. I mean, none of these are kind of really new opinions or anything kind of groundbreaking. But I think as creatives, especially as creatives working in commerce, there's always this kind of tension about trying to about the fact that we're doing this work to improve to improve other brands or to kind of to, to you know to amplify brand messaging or kind of things like that. And to me, the only kind of solution that I've kind of had to that is self-initiated work. And I kind of, you know, I tried to do that with Jackie Winter to make sure that we always have kind of things that we're working on apart from that. Cause I think if we just did that one thing, it would be quite oppressive. And I think that's why it's interesting that a lot of companies have taken this Google Creative Labs approach and kind of made these kind of incubators within their own space where these things kind of can be explored to get around that as well. So yeah, I mean, I guess just to kind of sum up as well, like, you know, how do you in your own practice, Elliot, I mean, obviously, you're in that creative lab position. So you can kind of do that. But are you still kind of keeping up with the self self initiated work? And is this something that you try to kind of pursue to get that balance? Or can you achieve that in your workplace at the moment without it? Yeah, I think I'm very lucky in that I'm able to do that in the place that I am at Google Creative Lab, because I've been given the freedom really to look around and think like, what do I want to work on? What am I passionate about? And uh, that's reflected in a lot of the projects that come out of Creative Lab from from everyone, actually. Like, if you have an interesting idea that's associated with something you're kind of passionate about, we can f- probably find a way for it to sort of reach, to, to be worked on and, and go out into the world. Um, as for other outside of sort of the, the nine-to-five job self-initiated projects, I actually kind of write down a ton of ideas and execute very few. So it's been a little quiet on that front, probably because I am pretty satisfied with what I get to do all day. And that's where I put 110% of my energy. And then uh, the side projects that I have are more like, hmm, I should figure out how to like <laughs> bake a pie or, or, you know, do something more sort of extracurricular, like totally different skills. Absolutely. I mean, it's such a fine line because I think some of the best self-initiated work comes out of dissatisfaction in other areas. So like, yeah, to, to really balance those two things is uh, is tricky. You've made a good run at it. And I really appreciate <laughs> you kind of bringing this link to our attention. And yeah, we will post all of these links, including you know Elliot's amazing work, which you can see in the enhanced version of this podcast or on our show notes as well. But I think we'll wrap up from here. It is time for drumroll, please. The brilliantly named thumbs up, thumbs down. Maybe Shaka, maybe not Shaka. We're, we're deciding. St- we're still deciding. Um, the time we dedicate each week to get the good, the bad, the completely petty off our chest. Why? Because, well, we listen to each other, but that's about it. Yeah, no one else will. Laura, what do you got? Thumbs up or thumbs down this week? You know what? I've been doing more and more thumbs ups lately. Thumbs up, thumb ups, thumbs up. I don't know. Thumbs up, I think. <laughs> There are two thumbs and they are up. 
So thumbs up. Yes. And I think it's because uh, spring has sprung here in Melbourne and the vitamin D is getting to my head. But in any case, I'm back with another thumbs up today. In uh, light of talking about apps that we like, I have to mention my favorite app, uh, aside from the ones that deliver food to me, which is the Astrology Zone app. And I am by no means a sort of hippie who lives by the movement of the stars, but I do love to indulge in a silly horoscope from time to time. And this app just gives you this like one or line, one or two line prediction each day. And they are sort of like weirdly specific in a way that's both sort of eerie and hilarious. And it's become a bit of a ritual reading them out to the girls here in the office each day. Elliot, what's your star sign? Oh, oh I have to think. Aries? Yeah. Aries? Yeah. Mm. Let's see. Oh, here we go. With the sun and Mercury conjunct in your solar seventh house, conversation may be quite fruitful, especially if you speak of business. Hey, what's I'd, up? I'd say that that's what we're doing oh. right bloody now. Jeremy, you're an Aquarius, aren't you? Hit me. I will. With my oh, horoscope. Yeah. You may consider parting ways with an institution, for you shine when thinking out of the box. Your house of travel will soon brighten. Oh, fuck. I got to give up Scientology. Yeah, you're going to have to give up Scientology. That's exactly it. And for me, you may want to freely express your thoughts today, but it might be wise to discuss your ideas first with a close friend or confidant. (laughs) Uh, Well, that's what I'm doing right now. Elliot, what about yourself? Is there anything you would like to endorse or despair upon at all this week? Oh, completely. I've got a big thumbs up. Some co-workers of mine launched a project called Notable Women, uh, which is an, uh, an AR project to put historic women onto dollar bills in the US. So, oh, is this the stamp? No, no dollar no, this bills. Is a, this is a project. No, no, where, the stamp that people are, okay, go on, go on, sorry. Oh, I'll describe it. So they worked yes. with former treasurer of the US, Rosie Rios, and when she was in her office, she worked <laughs> to put uh, Harriet Tubman, who's a, a, a famous woman, onto the $20 bill. So it's it hasn't been printed yet, but that's what she one of her legacy points was. And some of the people I work with were like, well, why aren't there more women on the dollar bills? Because it was all men, right, up to this point. So with this AR technology, they figured out, hey, what if we could pick like the top 100 historic American women that have been left out of sort of US currency, which is somewhat history in a way, and create an app where you can just put any of these 100 women onto a dollar bill or any, any US note. Well, look, there's a related project I'm going to link to as well, which is called the Harriet Tubman stamp, which is amazing, which is a stamp that's been designed to put over Andrew Jackson's um, image on the $20 because they apparently were going to replace it with Harriet Tubman, but the Trump administration is trying to walk it back. So this is a pretty great uh, piece of art and you know resistance that I'm pretty into. So we'll link to that as well. Jeremy, what have you got today? Thumbs up, thumbs down, shaka, komsi, komsa? I've got a third thumbs up. Actually, this reminds me of that. We're so posy. There's that Peter, Bjorn, and John album, which is just three hands all giving thumbs up. That's us. On the front. That's us this week. Mine is a tabletop game called Crokinole. And I actually, um, me and my partner, Lorelai, went on a date night the other night to this crazy brewery that I want to kind of, that I want to endorse. It's in a very hyper-local endorsement in a fern tree gully in the southeastern suburbs called That Little <laughs> brewery and they but it's so cool they do these like they do these games nights on every thursday nobody was there and they should have been there because it was amazing and they had they had these tabletop games and one of them was called crokinole and it's a canadian kind of board game which is kind of like a circular shuffleboard it's really hard to describe it's one of the and and the rules are really kind of complicated but once it was explained to us it was so much fun so much so that i'm considering getting a board for the office because it's really great and it really just also opened me up to this amazing board game and just game revolution that's kind of happening in general 
general. It's sort some amazing creative work that's being kind of kickstarted and being produced and a lot of kind of older, like kind of more folk games kind of being, you know, being resurrected and kind of remade. So there was another one there called Bunk, which was really cool, which is kind of a more contemporary one. And then older kind of folk ones from the UK that was really cool. So Crokinole, if you haven't played it, mm-hmm. check it out, play it, um, get into it. And that'll do us for this week. Elliot, where can people find all about you? Do you live on the internet anywhere? <laughs> you said you don't. I'm not where on the internet. Be? No, you can go to elliotburford.com, but otherwise you can just write me like an old fashioned letter. No, actually an email would be better. <laughs> Should we give your address out on the podcast? That's a great idea. Mm, yeah, this is my address. <laughs> Well, that is Elliot with two L's and two T's, my eternal struggle on spelling <laughs> that name, Burford.com. Elliot, thank you again so much for joining us. Good luck this week, and we look forward to keeping tabs on your work. Thank you. It's been awesome to be here. It's only half of it. Okay, so it's time to do our outro here. And as we decided last week, we are doing kind of speed runs. Laura, mm-hmm. what was my time last week? Last week, it was one minute, one second, and 67 milliseconds. Okay, so... So I'm getting the stopwatch ready. You ready for this, Jeremy? Yep, Have you count, been count me in on three. Okay. Uh, so three, two, one, and then I'm going to go okay. after go. Ready? But I won't say go. No, no okay. don't say go. Ready? Three, two, one... I'm Jeremy Wartson. She's Laura Chan-Baker, and this has been Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. Our theme music is by Totally Unrelated to our company, Melbourne-based musician Jackie Winter. You can check out the stuff on SouthCloud.com slash Jackie Winter. If you want more Jackie Winter Gives You the Business, archives of all the shows and the links we covered can be found at JackieWinter.in2t.biz. To receive all the links we talk about in the show each week in one neat little package, you can sign up to our podcast newsletter at TinyLab.com slash Jackie Winter. You can also find us mostly on Instagram at Jackie Winter. That's Jackie with a Y and with you like the season. And you can hit us up with any recommendations, feedback, questions, or comments at podcast at JackieWinter.com. If you love what you hear, you can really help us out by subscribing, rating, and leaving us a comment on iTunes, and of course, recommending us to all your mates as well as iTunes. They can get the show wherever you get podcasts from Spotify and Stitcher or for the traditionalist directly from our website, jackiewinner.com.biz. Remember that this is an enhanced podcast. If you listen to this, you can podcast Overcast or Castro. You'll be able to see the links to the articles as we're talking about them as well as other schmick visual content as we wrap it on. It's like we're there in the with you. It's like we're there in the room with you, with you. And if you work for an advertising agency or design studio and you're interested in our live extended version of the show called Open Tabs, be sure to check out the, be sure to check out OpenTabs.radio for more info. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs> you smashed it. what I do? 53 seconds, 41 milliseconds. Jeremy, that is a tough bar you've set for next week. Okay, well, we'll get on top of that. Thank you very much. (laughs) We'll see you all next week, and bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. I've had such a long-term internet crush on you for like since the, <laughs> since the, like I use the spam illustrations like I've used them in my presentations for like almost like ten years now. No like, way. Yeah, no, it's like seriously one of my favorite examples of a self-initiated project that's just wow. so good. And yeah, like it just man, put your banger inside, lady. Just kind of <laughs> every every time I look at it, it just it just fills me with so much joy. So much fun. Oh gosh. <laughs>